Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, is the region prepared for the next round of snow, or should this host book a hotel now? Plus, is birth tourism about to return to Metro Vancouver now that travel restrictions have been lifted? Plus, we look at why we're seeing the highest ever count for humpback whales in the Salish Sea. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Let's begin the day talking about the weather. Yes, Metro Vancouver residents are being warned to prepare for challenging travel conditions and to check their pipes to ensure they don't freeze with a blast of wintry weather on the way. Environment Canada has issued a special weather statement for Metro Vancouver, the Fraser Valley, House Sound, and Sea to Sky regions from Squamish to Whistler. Uh, the cold air will be moving from north to south, uh, south across the province starting today. Here's Global BC Senior Meteorologist Mark Madriga. As colder Arctic air rolls down through the BC interior starting tomorrow, there is a chance for Metro Vancouver to have some flurries at higher levels tomorrow and a greater chance of some flurries all areas. That's for tomorrow night and into Sunday. In the order of 2 to 5 centimeters of snow is the prediction tomorrow night through Sunday. That was uh, Global BC Senior Meteorologist Mark Madriga. And of course, temperatures, bone chilling temperatures are forecast of, of, of 5 to 10 degrees, get this, below the seasonal average. Now, the City of Vancouver has issued its own bulletin today asking residents to undertake essential travel and to take safety precautions if they need to drive. Now, the city says it is activating its snow and ice plan, which prioritizes major roads and bus routes, bridges and major streets near hospitals along with the four most used pedestrian pathways and 16 most used bike routes. Now, residents are also being urged to clear snow from their walkways before it hardens to ice and to ensure their vehicles have winter tires. Now, this all comes as a snow event uh, two weeks ago crippled Metro Vancouver roads, bridges and highways, leaving a lot of drivers stranded for hours, some up to 12 hours. Now, New Westminster Councillor Daniel Fontaine uh, was um, among many uh, local officials uh, calling for a snow summit with the Ministry of Transportation, Metro Vancouver Board, and local governments to discuss what went wrong. Daniel Fontaine joins us now. Daniel, thank you for speaking to us today. Thanks for having me on. So uh, we talked, uh, I believe it was a couple of weeks ago on this show, uh, and your call for a snow summit update us. What have you heard? Well, really, there hasn't been much progress, uh, Jess, since we last spoke, uh, other than I know that uh, the chair of Metro Vancouver did indicate some concern uh, regarding the provincial uh, roads and and off-ramps, on-ramps, and wanted to get more information and clarity around what the province did and did not do to keep the main uh, arterials kind of clear of snow. But other than that, we have not had a response from the Ministry of Transportation, nor actually officially from Metro Vancouver around the interest in actually having a a gathering, a snow summit, to actually find out what went wrong on November 29th. And, uh, you know, those 100,000-plus people, including yourselves and and many others, deserve some some clear answers, and so far we haven't made much progress. Yeah, I was thinking you had, I think it was a deputy minister or or regional uh, manager here from the Ministry of Transportation speaking on the issue. Um, I haven't seen the Minister of Transportation at all speak on it. And, um, and of course, uh, private contractors commented as well. Um, is there anything you can do beyond asking for this and calling for a snow summit in regards to uh, dealing with any future snowfall, that we, including what we're expecting next week? I mean, what can you do in regards to pressure moving forward? Yeah, so both uh, uh, City Councilor Linda Anderson and I do have the ability to have a voice within our own City Council. So I'm on City Council in New Westminster, and she's obviously in, in Surrey. So I do have a motion that is coming before Council and will be debated uh, at the January 9th meeting. And that's actually asking for our Mayor, who sits on the uh, Metro Vancouver Board, to, to bring this up as formally as an issue uh, with Metro Vancouver. So in addition to Councilor Annis, there's perhaps another voice there at Metro Van. In terms of the province, um, I'm not sure, Jazz. I mean, other than continuing to raise this and, and having public pressure on the ministry and, and the minister to uh, participate in a, in a dialogue around what went wrong, I don't think, um, I don't think the province is going to be there unless there's some, some real pressure applied. And, you know, we're going to be getting snow likely next week again. Who knows how these uh, highways and byways are going to be managing through that snowstorm. But if we get hit again... I have a feeling the chorus of requests uh, 
asking the minister to come to the table will likely get a lot louder. Why do you think you're hearing crickets? You know why I think we're, we're getting crickets is because this is, um, you know, uh, there's a concern there around the blame game, around you know, who's going to be held responsible, um, you know, who's going to be the one that will ultimately uh, kind of wear this. And I think that we have to move beyond that as elected officials, and we have to get to the answers and be prepared for regional snow events. And, and the large player in that is the province of British Columbia, as well as municipalities in Metro Vancouver. And I'm just, I, I just feel like some folks don't want to get in the room and actually have that discussion. And there's another group of people, Jazz, that feel that th- these issues should just be left within the 20-plus municipalities for us to kind of do our own internal reviews. And, to, to, and I just think that simply does not cut it, uh, given the regional impacts that we had with that last snowstorm. This was a regional event, and it requires a regional response with provincial involvement. And that's what I'm hoping we're going to get. Uh, do you think partially it's just the federal, the provincial government, sorry, doesn't want more costs thrown at it, you know, buying more trucks? It doesn't snow here very often, but when it does, it is a challenge. Mm-hmm. Is it just a cost of nobody wants to, to have to deal with uh, hard costs if, if it is presented to them? It, it may be, Jazz, but I, I do want to note for your listeners that the province is currently sitting on a $5.7 billion surplus, and that's with a B. And there is $5 billion within their contingency funding within the existing operating budget. I, I don't know the exact price tag of a few snowplows, but I would suspect that um, the $10 plus billion that's sitting there in the current operating budget would be more than enough to help provide uh, a region like Metro Vancouver uh, with a few snowplows and the ability to perhaps put some sand and salt on the road. So I don't think this is an issue of money. I think this is an issue of of elected officials being afraid of, uh, you know, accepting some responsibility here. And I think that's part of being in leadership, Jazz. You, you know, take responsibility, apologize if mistakes were made, learn from those, and, and let's prepare for the next one. That's all that Councillor Annis and I are asking for, and uh, it has been crickets uh, for the last couple of weeks. I can, I can already um, envision some of our callers listening to this going, well, Jazz, it's, it's, not, it's not the government. It's ridiculous. Spare me the big brother thing. Uh, citizens also need to be much more responsible. Get your winter tires. If they did that, uh, we wouldn't have half the problems that we had. What do you say to that argument? It isn't really about government. It's about people not, A, being out, shouldn't be out if they, don't, if they, if they know a snowstorm is coming, and B, mm-hmm. get winter tires rather than government having to spend more money and yet more meetings, um, you know, another perhaps bureaucracy being set up. This is about personal responsibility. What do you say to that argument? More snow tires and stay off the road. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I do believe that it's important that people do have the proper snow tires uh, to drive in the conditions. If you don't have them, then don't get on the road. So, so I, I firmly believe that. But I also know that there were a number of professional drivers, people that are on the road a lot more than you and I, and they were saying that even with the proper snow tires, even with you know years of driving experience, those conditions that we saw on November 29th were simply atrocious. They, they, they simply could not drive in those conditions. So uh, while I agree that there is definitely a level of personal responsibility for us all to take, and perhaps there is a discussion to be had whether or not things like requirements for, for winter tires or something that should happen in the lower mainland, I, I'm not letting the provincial government off the hook or municipalities uh, or individuals. We all played a role in this, but that's why we need to get together. That's why we need to have the snow summit and to, to put this all on the table. And if at the end of the day, it was all a personal responsibility and government had no role to play in this, I'm, I'm willing to accept that. But I somehow doubt that will be the conclusion. Daniel, thank you for your time today, my friend. Thanks for having me on. Well, over the past few years, you may have heard of the term birth tourism. Now, birth tourism refers to non-resident women giving birth in a country outside of their own in order to obtain citizenship. In many cases, you've heard of Chinese, Russian, and Nigerian women coming to Canada to give birth, where when the child is born, their child 
automatically uh, gets Canadian citizenship. Well, the Richmond News this week published an article stating that the father of a child born in BC via birth tourism uh, is suing the doctors who delivered the baby in the so-called birth hotel, which uh, brought the family from China. Now, the paper reports the man, on behalf of his now four-year-old son, alleges doctors and Vancouver Coastal Health were negligent in the provision of medical care to the newborn and his mother at Richmond Hospital. Now, the lawsuit uh, does make references to complications at the time of the child's birth, and as a result of that negligence in 2018 that they allege, the child suffered brain damage, seizures, delayed growth and development, cerebral palsy, and cognitive impairment. Now, this latest news has many also asking, will birth tourism return in significant numbers now that travel restrictions uh, are being lifted around the world? Joining me now is a journalist who has covered this issue extensively over the past few years. Graham Wood is a reporter with Glacier Media, which publishes community newspapers throughout the Lower Mainland and BC. Graham, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me on, Jazz. Well, let's talk uh, about this uh, case... uh at the start here, I mean, your thoughts on it, that I guess this was inevitable in some ways, wasn't it, with the amount uh, and the growth of birth tourism? That, that was my thought. I mean, we have, you know, leading up to the pandemic, we've had thousands of uh, so-called birth tourists uh, in BC, particularly in Richmond. And, you know, um, unfortunately, births do go wrong. And we've, we've got a situation here where, it's not quite clear um, whose fault it is, if it's anyone's fault. But we do. We, what we do know is that we have these maternity houses offering quasi gray area medical services. So um, I, I felt that this lawsuit was inevitable. Yeah. Uh, it, now, with COVID, what impact did COVID have on birth tourism in communities like Richmond? Oh, well, we saw a dramatic decrease in uh, uh, birth tourism numbers. And and by that, I mean uh, non-residents paying for birth uh, at Richmond Hospital. We saw in BC, we saw a drop uh, from 868 in 2019 to 194 in 2020 and only 110 in 2021 as uh, travel restrictions uh, came upon us. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea of a network of these birth houses, I mean, it, it, let's just say, let me want to walk our audience through what happens. So if you're a resident, in this case, let's say of China, uh, and you wish to uh, have, uh, number one, you, you want to have your child in Canada, the reason is why. What do you get out of it? Right. So, uh, in North America and Canada and the United States, we have birth uh, birthright citizenship. So if you're born in Canada or America, you automatically get citizenship. In the Western world, we are unique in the sense uh, you don't have to have, neither parent has to have uh, citizenship for their child who's born here to get uh, a passport. So there's been other Western nations that have changed their laws. Australia is probably the most... Uh, uh, recent one, um, but th- what this does is this allows uh, quite often wealthy or wealthier individuals, uh, families uh, from other nations. Uh, here, it's uh, China and back east. Uh, we see there's a lot of uh, birth tourism from Russia and Nigeria, um, and basically what they're doing is uh, they're they're assuring their their uh, child has uh, citizenship uh, of, of Canada. So they come here because of that birth tourism rule. I think it's grounded in a Latin mm-hmm. term, just soli, to be of the soil. Uh, okay, so you've decided you're going to do it because we have a certain law here in this country, um, and some would argue we're going to take advantage of it. So be it. So right. they would then have to contact, let's say, let's, let's look at the medical side first, a doctor. Now that doctor obviously yep. would have to um, say, these are my patients, and correct me if I'm wrong, they're the ones who would actually make the appointment that these people are expected to give birth at this date. We would need the services of this hospital. Exactly. So uh, we know that doctors are, are, are setting themselves up here. Uh, they make quite a bit of money with, with these services. They set up uh, appointments with the hospital. It, just like we would, uh, just like any woman here would, would have a doctor and, uh, and uh, liaise with the, the hospital. Uh, 
they're they're uh, acquiring doctors here uh, for that purpose. Um, and so um, the question I would ask is, we don't know what they're paying those doctors, right? I mean, we have a set fee as citizens of British Columbia, uh, where we paid the MSP. There, there's a schedule in regards to payments for a doctor for uh, for a public health care system. But what they pay those doctors, do we know? I, I don't know for certain um, that question. That that that's a big question uh, to be to be determined. Um, for, for certain. Mm-hmm. And then in regards to the birth, the, and talk to me a little bit about these birthing homes. How, how do they work? Right. So you have the doctor and then you have the birthing home. So uh, they work uh, probably separate from one another. So if you're wanting to give birth in Canada, you uh, would want to obtain a doctor here. Uh, they advertise their services. These are registered licensed doctors in BC. Um, and the next step is to find accommodation because you're a tourist. Um, so uh, what's come about in uh, Richmond in particular is uh, certainly houses, uh, just a regular house will be turned into a maternity, uh, uh, however you want to explain it, a maternity uh, house, a baby house uh, where they provide doula-like services, uh, I would describe, uh, you know, uh, they'll help you with your their breastfeeding of the mother, you know, make sure that the mom's well taken care of, grocery shopping, so forth and so forth. So one of the things that the lawsuit, that the lawsuit uh, uh, kind of gets into is that perhaps these baby houses are offering um, services that maybe go be above and beyond what the expectations and certainly what uh, our medical system would would expect of, of uh, maybe just a short-term rental is what it is, yeah. Now, Graham, we were talking about the the birth homes them, them, themselves, uh, and, and and this particular case. Have there been other um, cases, whether it be medical or financial, where things have not turned out well, either for the individuals in question that have come to this country or for our, for our healthcare system? There's been one case uh, that's being reported on uh, by myself. That is a. Uh, case where over $300,000 was billed uh, to a uh, birth tourist uh, who was unable to pay. And that ended up in a $1.2 million lawsuit uh, uh, that I believe has, I'll have to check if it's uh, still unresolved. But this uh, indicates some of the risks of birth tourism. The hospitals get can reap quite uh, a bit of money from these uh, uh, procedures, but uh, there are risks of... Uh, of uh, non-payments, especially when we get into the, you know, six figures, um, when things go bad. And uh, just like this uh, lawsuit, uh, you know, things have, have gone bad, bad before. When these individuals come to Canada uh, to, uh, to give birth here, do they come here on a, a tourist visa? Yeah, so the, uh, based on the stats, uh, the stats are based on uh, paying individuals on tourist visas. So, so when I say that 500 uh, mothers have uh, paid to give birth at Richmond Hospital before the pandemic, they are on tourist visas. Now, uh, one would argue uh, this is a federal issue. Uh, why have the why is the federal government not clamped down on this? Because uh, this was an issue under the is an issue under the federal Liberals presently. It was an issue under the federal Conservatives when they were government as well. Why do you mm-hmm. think? there's been a hesitation to clamp down on this, uh, unlike, let's say, countries like Australia. Yeah, I would defer to uh, immigration experts on this who would say that it's uh, it's quite a bit of legwork, I would say, to, to change such a, a law. You know, it's, um, you know, a lot of people will argue that's the cornerstone, it's the foundation of immigration in Canada, that uh, it's somehow noble uh, to grant citizenship. There's a lot of ideological um ideological uh, thought behind it, um, bureaucratic uh, process that would, it would be immensely difficult to change according to immigration experts. And one could argue, uh, and I'm just sort of pitching pasta here, that mm-hmm. if somebody arrives on a tourist visa and they have a child here, that uh, you're not a tourist, you came here for other reasons. One, one would think even a simple law federally that says that if you come right. on, on, a, on a tourist visa and you have a child, well, that child does not get automatic citizenship. Um, that alone, one would assume, um, would stop a lot of this. Uh, so far, nothing has yeah. happened. I, I'm curious, uh, it appears to me the U.S.'s 
starting to clamp down on this on this issue, uh, perhaps more than it, Canada? It, exactly, Chad. So, so it's important to understand that, you know, the vast majority of Canadians don't agree with this practice. Uh, you know, it's, it's considered very abusive. The figures are very high, uh, the vast majority. Um, and you can see why, you know, it's sort of taking advantage. So, if you if you start at the very top, you could change the law. You can make it uh, that you, you're not a citizen. There, and then there's sort of a pyramid where you can go down in terms of how to clamp down on this. If you're not going to change the citizenship laws, you could perhaps change the, the laws at the borders in terms of uh, declarations. So uh, making it uh, perhaps more difficult if you are intending to come here just to give birth, you could make that illegal, um, that you can't just come here to give birth. So... What the U.S. has done, they've clamped down on these baby houses and these operators in California. They've, they've brought money laundering charges. They've brought fraud charges against these operators, um, all because uh, they caught them lying at the border. So it's not illegal to come here and give birth. It's illegal to lie in your declaration. So it, if there could be a workaround there, that could be a workaround. And... From the federal level, you get into the provincial level as well. Um, you could have provincial regulations around these baby houses that are, you know, providing these quasi-medical services. And even at the municipal level, you can have bylaws on short-term rentals. You can have bylaws uh, with a licensing regime for these uh, specific businesses so that they're a bit more out in the open. Certainly, the United States has cracked down on this uh, practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you see the numbers, uh, you said over 800 in, in uh, 2019, do you see the numbers going back to that uh, high level uh, in the next year or two uh, as we move away from COVID? Right, yeah. So uh, immigration expert Andrew Griffith uh, is hypothesizing that Canada has lifted its restrictions, China has re- is, is looking, to restrict its restrict, uh, looking to lift its restrictions, and if China does that, we can certainly attribute the vast majority of birth tourism to China. And um, we could, according to Griffiths, uh, see a uh, bounce back in this industry uh, within the next few years. And, and, and you know, we, you and I have talked a little bit about Richmond, but there have been plenty of stories of this occurring in Burnaby, uh, in Vancouver, uh, in hospitals mm-hmm. in Toronto, in Calgary uh, as well. It is a growing trend nationally right. as well. Um, in the case of Richmond, I know you've covered this over the last few years, are there residents who feel they've been pushed away or they feel that uh, almost like local residents aren't able to get the hospital services they feel they should have um, and being pushed aside by this birth tourism practice? Exactly. That's uh, that's an issue that's come up uh, frequently. Uh, the overburdened maternity ward in Richmond Hospital back in the, you know, three years ago uh, was causing diversions. Uh, you know, we've done stories about people being diverted to other hospitals because the maternity ward is so uh, jam-packed, uh, including from, you know, you'd have a handful of uh, foreign mothers giving birth there. Um, and it's also important to note out that um, according to the statistics, the length of stay for birth tourist mothers is actually quite lower than the length of stay on average of a local, of a, of a Canadian resident, um, which sort of indicates that perhaps these moms aren't getting the care that uh, they should be because of uh, financial factors. Um, and, you know, we need to keep in mind that uh, the moms here, as much as you know, people may think that uh, the uh, uh, Chinese citizens are taking advantage of us. Um, um, it, you know, we have to think about the moms too and the health care that they're they're receiving, and, and they're not putting an ideal situation as well. Often, because they're they're sold a bill of goods from these baby houses um, that that may not meet the expectations of them. Well, it's a fascinating subject. I really appreciate your time today. We'll continue to focus on it. Uh, Thank you so much, and Merry Christmas to you. Thanks very much, Jazz. Merry Christmas. Whale researchers are celebrating a significant return of the humpback whales to the waters of British Columbia. In 2022, 396 unique humpback whales were recorded in the Salish Sea, according to the Canadian Pacific Humpback Collaboration. That total is up from 293 humpbacks uh, spotted in the region in 2017, and this year marked the highest number of whales seen in the Salish Sea in a single year since records began 
being kept. Joining me now is whale researcher Jackie Hildring from the Canadian uh, Pacific Humpback Collaboration. Jackie, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for the opportunity, Jez. Well, this is uh, absolutely wonderful news. Uh, when you hear of uh, counts going up for the humpback whales, it's, it's one thing, but this appears to be the highest ever count. The highest ever count indeed in the Sailor Sea in one year. What do you think is causing it? Yeah, it's it's pretty clear. Uh, we got a second chance with humpback whales because we stopped whaling them uh, 55 years ago. So it's population growth uh, that we didn't push this species over the edge. But there also there has to be the right precaution and humility around that. Because even though this is more, since we no longer overtly kill them, it isn't known how many of them are actually shifting from somewhere else. And of course, in a world of change and where you have more whales as well, overlapping with fishing gear and vessel traffic, it's not like the threats have disappeared. If anything, they're increasing. Have we seen uh, blips in the, in, in, in the uh, research or in the data where you have seen these increases, but then it's leveled off the following year or years after? Do you, are you concerned that this may be a one or two year thing and then we go back to the same numbers that we've had before? It is possible that, so we haven't seen that on British Columbia's coast. Um, the efforts from the Canadian Pacific Humpback Collaboration, the people who are trying to keep track of who these whales are, what we have seen is progressive building of numbers. They are so importantly that it's not whales randomly blundering up and down the coast, but these are humpbacks coming back to very specific areas at specific, specific times of the year and even using different feeding strategies. So they're specialists uh, in certain areas of our coast. So we still see the numbers generally increasing, but our colleagues in Southeast Alaska, for example, during um, a marine heat wave that ended in 2018, they saw a, a big absence of the humpbacks that had the same sort of return to the same area, and it has never recovered. And those humpbacks are not these humpbacks. What are the migratory pattern, patterns for the humpback whales? Yeah, so, so important with all of this is to know why the humpbacks belong off our coast, and that, thank goodness, they're back to their ecological role. Again, still recovering. It's not that they're back to the numbers that they used to be. This is where they feed. The dark water is full of plankton. The cold water is where humpbacks feed, where they have to build up to be able to undertake migrations to Hawaii, Mexico, or Central America, where the mums, if they're nursing, will even lose up to half their body mass. And so this is where they feed. They're also fertilizing this ecosystem. Part of the joy of having humpbacks back is whales poo at the surface. And as a result, they're fertilizing. There's more algae, which means you get more oxygen and terribly important. You also get more carbon dioxide being buffered. And then what the whales are doing for us even goes beyond that. The krill and herring, other small schooling fish from British Columbia, are actually being transported to these nutrient-poor areas like Hawaii, Mexico, and Central America when the whales pee there. So whales, thank you for everything you're doing for us. <laughs> um, uh, what does government need to do further, provincially and federally? If the, This is good news. How do we sustain yeah. this? What other things can, can we collectively do as a, as a society? Yeah, so, so it absolutely is not the case that everything's okay with humpbacks. Uh, it's terribly important to realize that, yes, there's more along the coast of British Columbia, and right away from that, it is, what are we going to do then with the overlap of fishing gear and with vessel traffic? And important in understanding the, the, the importance for precaution is also dead whales usually sink and carry their nutrients, their carbon, with them to the bottom of the ocean. So in knowing how many are getting hurt, it's difficult, which is why we study like the scars, for example, is the evidence. That shows that about 50% of the humpbacks have scarring from entanglement. So that's a problem that needs to be solved at the source because no fisher person wants to lose their gear to humpbacks, let alone what it means for the whales. But then absolutely as well, vessel traffic is a problem. You've got small vessels, of course, are highly incentivized to not crash into a humpback. These are such different whales and how they're feeding on our coast and how they can be oblivious of vessels. And there's been very significant human injury already. But it's the large vessels that may not even feel the impact. So we, the researchers, know just not where areas of concentration are along the coast. We know where individuals often are at certain times. So by looking at that and looking at large vessel traffic, the amount, the location, and the speed that those vessels are going there is so much that can be done there. 
And there's things that can be done like in alerting and using warning flags, but truly in narrow passes, once a large vessel is committed, there is no potential of diverting from that from whales being in that area. Uh, the federal government uh, just recently announced uh, a vessel buyback program for those who wish to leave the uh, the, the fishing business uh, and, and the purchase of their of their uh, vessels as well. I mean, all that's part and parcel also of of the not that the, we need the fishing industry, but it is very efficient in regards to what they do. You may not need as many vessels out there as, as we once did. That's all part of the part of it as well, isn't it? Yeah, potentially, but I, I of course that's a complicated issue in terms of of looking at carbon and noise and everything else because, uh, yeah, if we don't have localized fishing, where is our fish coming from? Mm-hmm. So it, it is looking at, like, like human ingenuity can bring us a long way in reducing the threats, but the, the main gap that needs to be addressed is the overlap piece of this. We can move towards ropeless gear, for example, with the fishing community being appropriately compensated for all of that. Mm -hmm. But it is truly like the fundamental thing that hasn't even been done is to look at is the equivalent now of like the Salish Sea being like, like like with the number of calves that are the first year calves that are there with their mums. It's like a busy school zone. We stopped whaling 55 years ago. We now care about whales as individuals. Wonderful. Who are we going to be now? Do we care that there are large vessels exactly where you have hungry humpbacks who are nursing their babies. And I think that we do care about that. And then there is so much that can be done from there. Well, Jackie, I got to tell you, this is wonderful news uh, and there's more work to do, certainly. But uh, it's great to hear uh, that the population um, uh, is growing and uh, hopefully uh, this count that that is the highest ever uh, continues in that direction that we all want to see. Thank you so much for your time and Merry Christmas to you. You're so welcome, and please, if people could check seeablogoslow.org for what they can do to reduce the threats. Thank you. The winner to organize the 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Put your flags up in the sky. is going Thirty-two have become two. There can only be one world champion. Road to the World Cup. Hey, welcome back. There were 63 matches played at the 2022 World Cup, and not only is the last one on Sunday the most meaningful, it will arguably be the most thrilling game of the month, long tournament in Qatar. Now, according to uh, official data from FIFA, the 2018 World Cup, uh, there were 1.1 billion people tuning in for France's final win over Croatia in Moscow. 1.1 billion people is one out of eight people on the planet. Now, when the World Cup brackets first came out and fans saw the possibilities for this year's tournament, an Argentina-France final was a dream matchup that many hoped would happen, but soccer is a cruel sport that often dashes dreams, except this time. So everybody's very much excited uh, in regards to Argentina playing uh, France. There will be plenty of Canadian fans watching and those of Argentinian and French heritage of course, we very invested in the game. Joining us now is our technical producer and huge soccer fan, Ryan Lee Hall. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Jazz. So how has the last month been for you? Uh, awesome. awesome. Again, Christmas came early. <laughs> Christmas came early. It's the World Cup. It's the greatest sporting event on planet Earth. And I will not stand for anyone to say otherwise. You know, as they've gotten uh, you know closer to the final, obviously, I've missed watching games at 11 o'clock at work. Yeah, <laughs> you know what? I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. But hey, come January, all the leagues are going to start up again. Some Champions League midweek. Yeah, it's just the World Cup is just very it's unique. It, it is special. Now, uh, let's talk a little bit about the French and Argentinian fans, uh, those here in Vancouver, here in Canada. Uh, it's it is an, it's a nail-biter for them, isn't it? It is, it is a huge match. Oh, 100%. I mean, you've got two of probably the best teams that were in the tournament in the world facing off against each other France versus Argentina France this being their second final in a row they won the last one they could win again in repeat it's been a long time since a country has repeated Argentina like they haven't won since I think it was was it the 70s or the 80s when Diego Maradona Mm -hmm. Uh, I did find some French fans here in Vancouver I found myself an Argentinian as well and let's start with Argentina first so this is who I spoke to Peter Motte Peter Motte, 
Shout out to Leo Coelho for uh, helping me track down that one. Uh, what is Peter? I'm Argentine, through and through. Through and through, Jazz. <laughs> and he went on to kind of describe the scenes that are happening in Argentina uh, right now in the lead up to the final. People have gotten progressively more excited. There's a, um, a grandmother that's become famous. After the, the first game we won against Mexico, went out onto the streets and there was a couple of people there singing Abuela, la, 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 la. So basically a song for this grandmother just supporting her. And now you have thousands of people going, walking to this block with no, you know, just a random block where a random grandmother comes out to celebrate the win. And that's happening in every point across the country. Imagine that, Jazz. It, I mean, I've been watching the Argentinian fans and the, I mean, on social media, and it is such a huge culture event. Like, I'd love oh, to be in Argentina or in France. Just the, the ambience, the, 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 this, the energy and the passion. Like, I mean, you see our colleague Leo watching Brazil play. Oh, my play. God. I mean, he oh, felt... Oh, my God. I mean, you see the energy and you see the, just how, how invested uh, soccer fans are. Uh, and uh, so whenever I see the images from Argentina, it is just brilliant and beautiful. It is anything unmatched to what we have here in North America. I don't care about, you know what, Canada and hockey, Olympic hockey, gold medal, this, Stanley Cup. No, it's completely on a whole nother level. Argentinian fans are even going outside Lionel Messi's grandmother's house. Really? And celebrating. It's <laughs> grandmother. Well, you got to celebrate. You got to celebrate. To. You have yeah. to. Now, our friend Peter here, uh, he has actually never seen Argentina win a World Cup. He's not that old, Jazz. I've never seen Argentina win the World Cup. I'm 33 years old. For me, it would be incredible. It would be incredible. It would just be a wonderful thing to see to see my country happy and to see somebody like Messi crown his uh, his career with with the, the ultimate title. I had to ask him for his prediction on the game, and uh, you know, I got an interesting answer, Jess. You know, we don't talk about prediction. It's bad luck. It's bad luck. We can't say the, the C word, the championship word. We don't, we don't say it. We're superstitious, at least uh, here in my household. Now, I was talking to Leo as well, and he kind of told me that that's kind of a thing within Argentinian culture, mm-hmm. not really predicting scores. It's a bit of a superstition. I'm sure they'll be praying, though. Oh, 100%. Uh, right? And, 100%. and that, that actually, I, I would agree with them. Don't make any predictions. That's a North American thing to do. 100%. Either, right? Now, I also did find myself a French fan, and this is who I spoke to. Guillaume Barret. And who is Guillaume? General Manager at Brasserie Coquette. Yes, that is over on Arbutus Street in Vancouver. And where is Guillaume from, Jazz? I grew in south of Brittany in a town called Nantes. Doesn't get more French than that. In Absolutely. It. Love that accent. Guillaume says he's proud to be French. I'm just proud. Just proud to be, to be French uh, when I see, uh, when I see uh, 11 players playing together and, uh, and wanted to do the best for the, for the country. I'm just proud. Now, over at that restaurant, 2685 Arbutus Street, they have been sort of holding match events, you know, per games here. And they are holding one for the World Cup final, as you can imagine. And he says it's already sold out. It's crazy. I have a waiting list of 50 people. I cannot accommodate more than 50 to 60 people watching the game. So I cannot, I cannot accommodate more than 50, 60 people. And, uh, and I'm already full. I put the reservation on uh, Monday at 7 a.m. At 7.05, I was full. And I have a waiting list of 50 people. I feel like Sunday morning I'm going to have some people outside of the restaurant watching <laughs> the game uh, by the window. Would you watch a game by the window if you I couldn't would. get in? I would. 100% I would. I would yeah, if, yeah. if England was in the final? You would do that oh, for 100%. sure. I remember I watched a game right in the middle of Oak Ridge Mall one time. I think it was uh, two World Cups ago. <laughs> Sitting oh, wow. there, did the TV in the mall? On, in the mall. I, I would just have stayed uh, home. I know. Well, I what happened to doing? be out and, and they had a TV on. I just stayed there for a couple yeah. of hours and watched the game. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. Now, now, I did have to ask him for his score prediction as well. Losing is not an option, but uh, it's going to be tough. I hope I hope an open game. And I don't know why I feel like I will be really presumptuous and optimistic on a beautiful game. And I will say 4-3 for France, like in 2018. There you go. 4-3 for France, Sunday, 7 o'clock in the morning. Are you going to be watching? I'm going to be I'm watching. getting a new TV delivered on Saturday just to watch the game on Sunday. Look at you. We yeah. did that as well. My dad did for the 2006 World Cup. Shout out to my dad. Plasma <laughs> stream good. back in 06. Plasma. Do you still have it? We still have it. We still use it. We have the CNN logo burnt into it, though. That's my mom's I, I should doing. give you my old TV. It's still Can new. Can you? Yeah. I'll take that. it. Ryan, thank you. No problem, Jess. All right. That's Ryan LaHall, our producer and huge soccer fan like I know a lot of you out there, and the game, of course, is on Sunday. We've been 
covering uh, Premier David Eby's uh, housing announcements quite extensively. You know, when he was named uh, Premier, he promised uh, that he would um, be focused, laser focused, uh, on the issue of housing. He's actually ma- named a housing minister, Ravi Kailan. Uh, he, along with the housing minister and the Vancouver mayor, the other day announced 90 new units uh, to be built, two modular structures that would hopefully replace some of the tents that we see along Hastings Street and uh, Crab Park. But when he talks about housing, there's many promises he's also made during the NDP leadership run as well. Global BC's legislative reporter Richard Zussman uh, has been speaking to uh, Premier Eby as well. Uh, He tried to get him to focus a little bit more on some of the other promises and uh, he uh, chatted with uh, the Premier uh, earlier today so I wanted to bring him on to get a sense of when we can expect some of these uh, and what those announcements will be um, in the new year. Richard, welcome. Hey, Jess. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about your conversation with the Premier today. Uh, can we, uh, are we going to expect some big announcements uh, throughout 2023 in regards to um, housing from him? Yeah, we're going to get some big, big announcements in 2023. So uh, as you described, we know that Premier Eby focused heavily during his leadership race around housing. Mm-hmm. And we've now also seen the mandate letters for the ministers, including Ravi Kalon, and I asked him for a timeline today. So that flipping tax that he promised in leadership that's in Ravi Kalon's mandate letter, that will come next year. They are working to build it now. Clearly, we will have to look at the details uh, because there are lots of um, business developers uh, who would be seen as flippers who are just trying to update and upgrade homes and get them to the market uh, in order to find uh, good, affordable homes for people. We'll see how the uh, legislation tackles that issue, but we're going to see that uh, tax this year. We're also going to see the changes to permitting rules that will require secondary houses in every municipality in the province. There have been some municipalities that have been resistant to allow for secondary or laneway homes. There will be a provincial requirement. Uh, so Minister or Premier Eby telling me today when I spoke to him that those will be two commitments of his. We're also going to see changes in the speculation tax. Mm-hmm. Uh, if communities want it, they can ask for it. The province will deliver that. And the last one is that much-anticipated, much-weighted renter's rebate. And EB was less committal in terms of timeline. We have only heard it will come before the next election. It is proving to be complicated, but I was told today that it is before um, experts at the Ministry of Finance to figure out how to potentially build a renter's rebate program uh, for British Columbians. You'll remember $400 was promised all renters in 2017 election. Mm-hmm. You know, with inflation, with the cost of things, $400 does not go as far today as it went in 2017. So I will be curious to see. The other part is whether this is means tested. That was one of the big criticisms all along, Jazz. Yeah. I, I used to joke that, uh, you know, a star defenseman for the Canucks who rented a Yale Town apartment uh, would get $400 just like Jeez. a single mom, uh, you know, trying to, to get through, you know, a monthly bills would get. So I think there likely will have to be some means testing because uh, that is a clear challenge within the way that the, the NDP originally laid out the renters' rebate. Yeah, it's it's something, but certainly in the downtown area where one-bedroom suites are going for $2,500 a month, the $400 doesn't go very far. But, you know, it's, it is something, so I'll say that. Uh, and let me just t- touch on a couple things. The secondary suites where they want to legalize them throughout the province, there'd be a lot of neighbourhoods in Metro Vancouver, when you think about it, or anywhere really, that prefer not to have suites, older neighbourhoods. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge impact. A, on how do you legalize them, and then B, just parking issues, you know, practical issues in and around neighborhoods. And the second issue, uh, let's touch on the house flipping thing. There are a lot of mom and pop companies, and that's what they do. They buy a home, they tear it down, they build a new one, they sell it. Now, one could argue a $1.5 million home uh, torn down and then resold, let's say, for $2.5 million. That makes it unaffordable for some, and maybe he wants, Mr. Eby wants to deal with that. But one could also argue there's a lot of, like I said, mom and pop sort of developers, that's what they do. So he's going to yeah. probably take their market potentially away, or in some capacity may do so. So there's a lot of uh, political landmines he's going to have to work around on some of these uh, issues that they're hoping to tackle. Yeah, the challenge was that last example you brought up is if you have a developer who's working on a project very quickly in a home that's in essence in disrepair, who is going to come in and do that work? 
Like, yeah. will the province then fill that void? That you, if you have these, you know, war era homes that are wearing down, maybe haven't been updated for a long time, is it not more beneficial to find, you know, maybe a smaller company that will do that work to upgrade the home so that, you know, a young family can move in? There's a lot of questions that need to be asked. And I'm, I'm acutely aware that David Eby is aware of that challenge. And that is in part what they're working through now in terms of the details. And the secondary suite one, I think parking is a challenge, but it was interesting. When I asked him about it, he, he pivoted very quickly to, you know, the trying to ease off the reliance on cars. And it is about finding homes in areas that are connected to transit, yeah. connecting transit to more communities, finding places where people can live and they're not reliant on cars. So I think the premier would quickly say to you, if you bring up the issue of parking, well, we don't need to provide parking, that we need to find places in areas where people can access public transit. Homes are more crucial than finding a place to park your car. I don't disagree with them, but uh, try to sell that to uh, suburbanites. <laughs> uh, and uh, But, you know, lots for you and I to talk Where about. elections it. are won, Jazz. I know. You are acutely aware. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And he's going to have to keep an eye on that for sure. Richard, thank you so much, my friend. Have yourself a wonderful weekend. Yeah, thanks, Jazz. You too. We've had another week of opinions, experts, open line wisdom, and hot takes. It's that time to bring together our dynamic duo to help explain the week that was. It's time for The Wrap. Goodbye now. It's over. That's all. Thank you. All right. That's a wrap. It's Friday, and this is The Wrap on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Thank God it's This week, we look at how to keep the peace at the family dinner this holiday season. And MILF Manor? How low can reality TV go? Joining us today is our regular rap panel, Leah Halive. She's a TV reporter and radio host. And Sarah Daniels, a real estate agent in South Surrey. She's an author and broadcaster as well. Leah, Sarah, welcome. What's up, guys? (laughs) What's up, indeed. Well, all right. Well, getting the family together for holiday dinner can be fun and festive, but it can also be fraught with tension. No matter where you fall on the political spectrum, chances are you'll find yourself at odds with the views held by some or all of your family members. Now, these political differences can actually strain your relationship to the point that you begin to dread or even avoid getting together for the annual festivities. It's so common that McCain Foods has given customers or is giving customers an opportunity to win Distract-A-Fry, a voice-activated device that dispenses cooked McCain fries each time it hears one of 80 pre-programmed trigger phrases this Christmas. <laughs> Take a listen. Tell everyone who we're going to vote for. Pyramid scheme. All right, don't cancel me. You look tired. We just got back from seeing an intimacy coach. So you applied for that job? If the meds are good enough for a horse. (laughs) There there goes Uncle Larry talking about ivervectin again. (laughs) Oh, Oh, man. Uh, Leah, let me start with you. Do you have any family members, uh, and obviously do not mention any names, that uh, that you try to avoid, or is it, uh, are there moments where you've had to sort of like bite your tongue? Oh, we've had to walk away from conversations. My, My family can't talk about Elon Musk or politics. I think what we need is the distracted drink. So it keeps a you know, shot in your mouth. I think that's what my family needs. And then the party will keep on going because politics and Elon Musk, for some reason, it's just, oh, my God, it's so, so bad. But Elon so, is Elon is a relatively new. So this has already occurred yeah. in the last little while. Well, yes, because we have a couple family members that love Elon Musk and have for years. So we've heard about him for years. So then now it's built up and you know how Elon is behaving now. So now it's a toxic conversation. Right? Oh, so it's turned from like, well, yeah, he's fascinating. To, oh, my God, please not again. He's already been. I so <laughs> want to come to your family get together. I, I can feel a good fight coming on. I right? Know. I know. You I should, need you there. You should bring Sarah over one of these days. She, I, she yes. just itching to go for it. Yeah, Sarah, have you uh, had any difficult uh, dinners with the family or friends uh, over the holidays when it comes to politics? Not with politics, weirdly enough. I mm. mean, um, I, I, which is surprising. Virtually everything else, absolutely. But <laughs> politics, I guess we just never actually get there. I mean, it, Christmas is, I, I'm, I'm not a huge fan of Christmas, and it's not because I don't love the idea of it. But when I was a kid, 
My dad didn't get along very well with my mom's family, and he didn't get along very well with his mother. So we would start Christmas morning off, and it was, you know, he tried to organize everything. It was like, let's put away the wrapping paper. It was like everything with military precision. Then we'd go and have lunch at my mother's family's place, and so that was super stressful because my dad was not happy. And then we'd have dinner with his family, and he and his mother fought. So, I mean, by the time I was six or seven, Christmas was like, yay, presents. Boop, stress. Like it was just too much stress. So <laughs> yeah. now I'm, I'm, I'm literally anything that is like no stress in the holidays, I'm all over. And that often includes not spending a whole lot of time with family. You, you technically weren't celebrating <laughs> Christmas. You were celebrating Festivus, the airing of grievances, it sounds like. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Leah, do you think it's it's uh, COVID has is part of the reason why um, uh, dinners at times are more stressful or feel like they're more stressful now? I know we've uh, always I, had some of this, but yeah, has COVID think, uh, exacerbated it? I think so because nobody has patience anymore. It just seems like everybody's angry underneath, right? I think yeah. everybody's angry already. We have from the last few years, just our, our wicks are like small now. So it takes nothing to ignite them. So when you have a group of people that don't, you know, believe in the same things and you get them in the same room and they're drinking and guess what? Well, that's been lit really easy. Right. So I think that it's just, we're so worn thin that there's just no patience. There's no decency anymore. I think, even with family. Yeah. I think Sarah, do you see that as well? I mean, and and it's, and it actually goes beyond the family dinner. I mean, I was talking to a pollster. He says, people are not happy. Like they're, they're, they're edgy, they're uh, ornery, but they don't know why they're ornery because of you take inflation, you take in COVID, uh, you take all these things. It's just been built up in people. Do you see that even outside of uh, family dinners? For me, the worst thing about COVID was that I couldn't get out of going to things by saying, oh, I'm not feeling well, because then immediately people thought you had COVID. <laughs> yeah, it was you it's, it's, you're kind of like, you know, oh, I've got a little bit of a sniffle. And it's like, damn, I can't say that because everybody's going to think I have COVID. And to my knowledge, I've never actually had COVID. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I, during the holiday season for me, um, like I, I, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago on the show. I mean, I, I think Christmas is all about the kids and stuff, but I'm also... I mean, you know, I like to make sure that I'm donating to charities, I'm, you know, giving to the food banks and all that kind of stuff. I tr- the, the, the thing I find most frustrating is trying to get through the shopping malls. Yeah. Um, oh, God. Because it's, I don't know why people feel that they need to walk seven abreast at the, spa- <laughs> the speed of a glacier. I'm not sure what that is all about, but it happens. So that's where I get my frustration is like, for the love of God, I've got two hours to do everything. Get out! I know that you do have a short fuse. I mean, people always talking about people always talk about technology in the future. I go, you go to any shopping mall, you it is a driverless car uh, parking yeah, oh, lot. The like parking it. lot's awful. Oh, I, I always try and park as far. I park as far away as possible, just because I need that cleansing breath when I leave the mall. The walk, you know, like to park outside. I I need to sort of like defuse and then and then of course the farther you are away the easier it is to get out when it's time to go absolutely all right folks <laughs> coming up uh, next our rap panel looks at whether reality tv shows have gone just too far that's next hey welcome back to the show if you're just joining us we're speaking to our friday rap panel leah halive is a tv reporter and radio host and sarah daniels is a real estate agent in south surrey She is an author and broadcaster. Well, topic number two, just when you thought every ridiculous dating show idea had been taken. (laughs) We're already giggling already. TLC went and threw a curveball with their upcoming series, MILF Manor, which pairs eight hot moms with eight ripped younger men. Now, in a teaser release this week, the crew of moms who are single and ready to mingle find themselves in a luxurious mansion in Mexico where they're about to embark on a dating experience like no other. Now, take a listen to what the end of Western civilization sounds like. Young men have much more energy. They think out of the box. I want that. Especially in the bedroom. (laughs) Welcome to the villa. You're about to embark on a dating experience like none other. I'm ready to connect with somebody who doesn't really care how old I am. It just got real. Turn it up now. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's just so gross. You just can't. It's just so gross. It's just so Ick. Gross. I can't even get a question out. Sarah, and what it's are you? It's so American. It's Sarah's so not American. signing up. <laughs> No. Ew, ew, ew. Is that a new low, Sarah? I I mean, 
You know, the funny thing is, it, it, like, I, I was just scrolling through during the commercial break and looking at all the different shows on TLC. Yeah. So it's like My 600-Pound mm-hmm. Life, Dr. Pimple Popper, 90, 90 Day Fiance, um, like Sister Wives and all this crap. I mean, it's just so brutal. I mean, even like even when we had the Real Housewives of Vancouver, they were all American, by the way, for the most part. So it's it's I I think it's it's I don't know if it would you could all these shows that try and put Canadian spin off they don't work. I think I'd like to think that Canadians as a whole have a shred more dignity, though it's you know could be debatable. But holy crap! Like seriously, you sign up for that? I would rather. I literally would rather die. I would rather die. Um, it's mortifying. It ex- Who are these people? Like, do they have? Like, the, the thing is, when you're making the decision to go on that show, like. Who are the people that surround you in your life that are, are that are saying, "Hey, that seems like a great idea"? <laughs> like you're obviously surrounded like by morons with this kind of like. Oh, it's. it's just, I know. I was brutal. I, I see. Leonardo. Yeah, go ahead. I look at it as TLC. It's Trashy Ladies Channel. Okay, so but hang I, on, hang uh, on. But TLC nice. stands for the Learning the trashy Channel. Trashy Ladies what? Channel. That's, that's, that, the Learning Channel has gone out the window. That's <laughs> no, left like okay, that. Okay, I watched the bathwater. I watched 90 Day Fiance. I thought this was the most stupidest show in the world. And I had to watch it one time. I'm like, I got to see what this is about. And I actually got addicted to it. And I watch all the time. So I'll be honest with that. No, you (laughs) did not. But I, yeah, I'm sorry. I'll be honest. But then I was thinking, what's next? What's next, guys? Milf Uh, Manor. That's next. No, no, no. no. (laughs) After that, think of Grandma's Goodies. Oh right? my! Eighty somethings looking for college boys, right? Grandma's oh, good. That's what? where they're going. <laughs> what? Like I don't like. <laughs> Like I watched the first season of Survivor and then I stopped watching reality shows. Like I just had don't have any interest. I, yeah. I watch yeah, I watched Survivor for a while. I, yeah. I got I, I gotta too. admit though, I do watch The Bachelor and The Bachelorette because to me what? it is like it is like slowing down at the scene yeah. of a car crash. There's something <laughs> so hysterically ridiculous. I, Bachelor in Paradise. Only, yeah, yeah. Same Bachelor thing. Bachelor in Paradise is yep. is so fabulously awful. It's just yeah. it's Chef's kiss. I watch it. Too, so. But it does yeah, say something. Honest. It does say something about society when the Discovery Channel used to be about nature documentaries. Arts yeah. and Entertainment <laughs> Network used to be Arts and Entertainment, not yeah. Duck Dynasty. And TLC no. was the Learning Channel. And I now it's Milf Manor. I remember yeah, the Learning, learning Channel. I remember the Learning Channel always have like documentaries and like the show biography. Remember? Yeah. A- oh A&E, yeah. A and E. A and E. That as well. Yeah. Like yeah. I mean, all of it's just gone right now. But we're. I mean, the toilet. reason they're doing this is that we collectively as society are watching, right? Yeah. I mean, it, and they're popular beyond belief. You have no idea. Like they're. That's why they can do these shows. They 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 don't cost much because they don't. Well, that's the thing. Much. Is yeah. I mean, yeah, ratings for like the, the ratings. Yeah. There's so many channels now, and and the, and the market is so segmented. That reality TV, it, it's a lot less expensive to make. Yeah. I mean, and and clearly, I mean, like this is all filmed in the states. People are clearly clamoring to make an ass of themselves yep. on network television, and so, we want to watch it. We yeah. want to see people worse off than us. If that's you can't act, if you can't sing, if you can't dance, <laughs> yeah. you can still be famous. I guess that's yes. the ultimate message, right? Tune in to the Trashy Ladies Channel, TLC. Oh <laughs> I didn't know it was. The, the, I didn't know where that came from, but holy cow, it sounds about right. I tell you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to market that. Yeah, you should. That's just, you nailed it there. Uh, Leah, oh, Sarah, no thank matter. you so much. My apologies for inflicting uh, you with this oh, by last. The, yeah. By the way, before before you guys go, at 10 a.m. tomorrow on the Learning Channel, yeah. it's yeah. called Awake Surgery. Derek bears his man boobs. I'm not oh. kidding. 10 o'clock I'm tomorrow in. morning on TLC. That's PBR. what's on. That's what's on. I mean, Derek bears his man boobs. On that note, Leah, Sarah, thank you so much. You're more than a guy. Have a wonderful weekend. That is Leah Halata, TV reporter uh, and radio host, and Sarah Daniels, real estate agent in South Surrey, author, and of course she is a broadcaster as well. TLC. The Trashy Ladies Channel. I did not know that. But that is part of the issue, isn't it? I mean, there was a time where the TLC stood for the Learning Channel, and now they're marketing MILF Manor. I just And the Discovery Channel used to be about documentaries, as Sarah said, and now I don't know what they do, car accidents, whatever else they <laughs> cover. And then uh, and Arts and Entertainment used to be a biography and everything else. 
And uh, there you go. So, <laughs> oh, we were actually wondering whether or not we should be doing this segment, but I'm glad we did because uh, uh, it's it is relevant because somehow these shows do. <laughs> do remain popular. Hey, folks, we're out of time. Thank you so much for listening. I want to thank our producer, uh, Bianca Rego, our technical producer, Ryan LaHall. I'm Jazz Joe Hall. Thank you for listening. News Hour is next. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.